This episode of the EdSurge podcast is brought to you by the Elementary Education Program at Emporia State University. The online master's in elementary education program at Emporia State is designed for career changers interested in becoming elementary teachers. Learn more at emporia.edu grad. That's emporia.edu grad. Michael Wesch is a rare professor who's a celebrity on YouTube. He's made educational videos that have gotten him more than 10 million views, and Wired Magazine once gave him an award for his innovative viral videos. He even speaks like a YouTuber, talking about increasing watch time and referring to his videos as content. But Wesh is also an award-winning classroom teacher. In fact, he scored a National Teacher of the Year award a few years ago. He's technically based at Kansas State University, where he's a professor of cultural anthropology. But he's increasingly kind of a professor at large on the internet. He helped build a free site called Anth101, Anthropology for Everyone, where anyone can follow along at home and try online challenges that he gives to his students, like go interview a stranger and share a picture or video of the encounter on social media. So I was surprised to learn that Wesh does not like to be on camera. I hate being on camera. Uh, you know, I think this is one of the weird kind of paradoxes of being an introvert is a lot of introverts are actually very good on stage and they can be very good on camera, but it takes a tremendous amount of work and a lot of emotional work. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's really, really hard for me to get on camera, uh, but I've become much more comfortable with it. And I think because I struggled with it so much, I thought it was important to make a video about how I struggled with it and some tips for how I came uh, you know, overcame that because I know I'm not the only one uh, who struggles. These days, Wesh is sharing all kinds of tips for making educational videos in a YouTube series that's called Teaching Without Walls. He started the project before this pandemic we're in, but he's recently put out more episodes to help those who may be suddenly teaching online for the first time. After all, across the country these days and the world, instruction is happening online, and he says he's found that video can be a key tool to make connections with students. In fact, I talk to colleagues all the time who still are not on video, and they know it would be a good thing, you know, to reach out to their students and connect to them that way. Uh, but it's it's just too hard for some people. And so I, I just wanted to help people uh, overcome their fear of the camera. Hello and welcome to the EdSearch Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSearch. For this week's episode, I connected with Wesh to hear his vision for how to turn online educational videos into what he calls adventure lectures. And he shares some of his tips for how to bring online teaching to life. Because I learned that not only is he camera shy, but Wesh was reluctant to try online teaching in the first place. It, it was really surprising to me that, that I actually love online teaching. And I still love classroom teaching too, but... I want other people to love it too, because if, if you love what you're doing, you're going to do better at it. Why do you love online teaching? Oh man, I have created so many fantastic connections with people. Uh, I think that that's the, the thing, right? Is, is that there is this, I think we think of it as online teaching and I've just more and more think of it as out in the world teaching. And that means I'm out in the world. Like when I'm creating content for the class, I'm actually going out in the world with simple video cameras or my phone or whatever. And I'm, for example, my world religions class, I go out and talk to religious leaders around the community. Uh, I, you know, have barbecues with them, you know, and like, and I just invite students in to like, hey, look what we're doing here, you know, and 
uh, we don't have the same beliefs, but uh, look at us like, you know, sharing and enjoying ourselves. And I think that also conveys a, a secondary message that, that's very important, you know, not just like here, let's learn about this religion, but also, you know, this implicit message of, you know, we can we can open up to each other and we can understand each other, you know, even if we're different. So I'm excited about those kinds of things. And uh, and I also, you know, just I, I, I guess the other thing is that I found that I'm reaching a totally different audience with online teaching. So, you know, I've, I've got people all over the state, especially, but also all over the country who, for whatever reason, can't come to campus. Um, you know, some of them are older and some of them uh, are suffering from PTSD and some of them have other disabilities, but they're all fascinating people. And, you know, as somebody who values inclusive teaching, I think online teaching is one of the most inclusive things that you can get into because that's where you're really reaching populations who, for whatever reason, just can't be in the classroom. And it just, honestly, it's uh, soul fulfilling. You know, it's, it's powerful. I, I just absolutely love it. it. It seems like there's a way to do it well and having that feeling of connection. I think right now we're at a time where, you know, we're just finishing up the semester at a lot of places that was cut midway with half of it being kind of normal and then the other half being this emergency remote mode as the pandemic uh, coronavirus, you know, cut through the, the country and closed essentially in-person teaching. So I don't know that a lot of, um, you know, I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of professors who are not so excited about what they just created um, under the circumstances that they were under. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, those were incredibly difficult circumstances. And the reality is to create an online class that you're going to enjoy, you really need to start up with sort of a, the same amount of time you're going to teach a class. So you're going to teach it 16 weeks. Uh, it would be nice to have a 16-week buildup before that, you know, where you could create some of the content, for example, so that you're not slammed and trying to create content when you should be trying to connect. So, you know, I, I really think an online class, you, to do it right, you need a lot of time up front to create a lot of the, the sort of static stuff at a high quality. And then when the class is actually happening, you have time and space to just simply connect with your students, to read their work and uh, make little videos, you know, reaching out to them and that kind of thing. And all the spontaneous stuff that happens when your mind is a little bit more free and not just like in the grind of trying to, you know, get the next module up. Before this pandemic hit, you did something that I was pretty surprised by, which is you took a trip around the world to make videos for your class. Yeah. So I applied for a sabbatical and instead of applying for a research sabbatical, I applied for a teaching sabbatical essentially to to actually um to improve my teaching rather than to go all in on the research side um and so yeah i, I they let me off for the spring semester and so i left uh just right after fall semester ended and got to papua new guinea where i worked for 20 years i've done research there for 20 years so made some um, really fun videos there got some great footage and then, and that was returning on. to the site of your like dissertation work. And yeah, that, right. Yeah, as yeah, in so anthropology. Was, yeah. Yep. So that was super fun, and you know I got to bring my whole family of three kids, and so that it was just amazing for them to meet all my friends there that shaped my life so much. And then we went to um, Vietnam, Singapore, then Vietnam, 
And basically, uh, COVID just started chasing us at that point. So we left uh, Vietnam the day their schools closed. And then we got to Thailand and we left Thailand the day they started kind of uh, seeing a lot of cases rise. And then we went to India and uh, we left Jaipur for and we and, you know, we flew straight home at that point because they were shutting down Jaipur. And this is late February. And there's kind of a sense like, oh, boy, something's happening here. Um, so did so yeah, you cut your trip cut short? short. Mm. Yeah, cut short a bit. But um, we did get three amazing months in and. Uh, the next part of my series will actually be um, a lot of those videos I'll, I'll create not only for my class, but I'll post them publicly and, and then I'll, I'll create um, secondary videos to those that are sort of making of to show people like how I did it. And I, I hope that, you know, maybe we can build a community of people who are exploring the, the edge of what it could mean to be you know, an, an online teacher and, and what it would mean to be online, but thinking about it as out in the world rather than just on a screen. That, that's the biggest thing that I, I advocate is that uh, online does not need, need to mean on the screen. And in fact, uh, you can set people free and uh, their assignments can be out in the world and they can listen to the material out in the world. Uh, I mean, it's. I think it's a it's a wonderful thing that you could set people free in that way. The, the only time you really need to be on a device is when you want to uh, talk to people. And so, you know, let's save our device time for connecting with each other. And you know, the rest of the time, I think it's it's healthy for us to be out in the world, and uh, and it's also good for education in a way. To uh, you know, a lot of the things that we teach can can be learned and engaged with out in the world. So. Do you think this is this your trip around the world? You're teaching sabbatical to make online classes. Do you think that's something that I mean? It seems like it works for anthropology, your discipline. But do you think this is something that other? It's a model that other professors could do. Well, I won't. It won't take the form of say you know going around the world necessarily for other disciplines. It could for some, but not for all. I think the real thing that I'm doing when I say go out in the world is. I'm having an authentic encounter with the messiness of the real world uh, through my discipline. And every discipline has this, you know, and uh, it could be that, you know, if you're a physics professor, you're taking them uh, into the lab to actually see what you do. And you're going to run an experiment not knowing what's going to happen. I think that's the key thing is that the things that I do, I essentially, I think of them as adventure lectures, like it's an adventure in that I don't know the outcome. You know, I'm going to Thailand and I'm, you know, going to uh, talk to monks that I've never met before. And I'm going to see what their life is like. And I don't even know if they're going to accept me or, uh, you know, be gracious enough to let me uh, have a conversation with them. You know, and I take students along with me for that journey and, and all the anxiety I feel in doing that. And I think, you know, just to take physics again, uh, you know, when you run a, a trial or an experiment, you you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. And it can be really frustrating when something happens that you didn't expect. And if you can respond to that sort of live, so to speak, in video uh, with an attitude of, oh, you know, that was unexpected. That's interesting rather than that was unexpected. And dang, I don't know what to do next. And, you know, this, this, I'm a failure, all that, that stuff. You know, you're modeling your practice. And I think every discipline has a practice and they can model that uh, in through video. 
uh, through a sort of an adventure adventure video, you might say. Uh, it could happen anything. I, I could see it in business, uh, doing sort of marketing uh, case studies, things like that. You know, essentially you're just bringing students into your practice, whatever it is. So even like literature, you know, what if you sat down with a book and you just had like a live encounter with that book? You know, you wrestle with the ideas live for your students and then, you know, go back and, and edit it so that it's, it pops, you know, and, and your students really see that this is a, a living thing for you. This is a living text. The, the core thing here is just to have a real encounter with messiness uh, through your practice and demonstrate your practice uh, to your students. After the break, what professors tend to get wrong when they first teach online? And how being a professor on the internet comes with responsibilities to counter misinformation and extremism. Stay with us. Do you know someone interested in becoming an elementary teacher? Emporia State University's 33-credit-hour elementary education master's program allows individuals to do just that, regardless of their background of study. The coursework is available online, and the clinical classroom experience can be completed at a placement near you, allowing you to earn a master's degree without changing locations. In as little as two years, Emporia students will not only have a master's degree, but they will also be eligible for an elementary education teaching license, depending on their home state's requirements. Send your paras, stay-at-home parents, subs, and anyone else who might be interested to emporia.edu slash grad to learn more. That address again is emporia.edu slash grad. Now back to the episode. What's the biggest mistake that new online professors make? Oh, they, uh, the biggest mistake is by far thinking that they're just going to replicate the classroom by lecturing on Zoom you know, twice a week and trying to hold a discussion on Zoom or something like that. Uh, you know, there are classes where that works. So I don't want to be too strong in saying this, but for most people, uh, really, you should be thinking asynchronous first. That means, you know, having kind of this body of content that students can access in multiple ways uh, at any time, any place. And, and have like a really super simple structure, uh, maybe like one due date per week in which the same things are due every week. Uh, these are the kinds of things that can take the mental load off of a student. So they're not just thinking about like, oh, you know, what to do? And they get confused and it, it, gets it becomes like kind of heavy on their mind just thinking about, you know, how to succeed in the class rather than sitting deeply with the material. I was also struck by one of the points you make is that you've spent, you know, some of your videos are quite elaborate and really impressive and, you know, lots of, you know, either ambitious in that you're like running a marathon while you give the lecture or you're like physically in it, which you really did. I'm not, it sounds exaggerated, but um, when people hear this, they're going to be like, no, but you actually did that. And then you, but you actually found that some of the simpler videos connected are the ones that the students mentioned as the ones they liked? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the ones that students like are the ones that I'm directly responding to something that's happening in our specific class. You know, it's like obviously custom tailor made for our class. I'm mentioning specific students and those, you know, you really can't put a lot of time into those because that's not reusable content. You know, that's for that class. So that's where I, I call them super simple videos. These are videos that really require no editing. You're just going to kind of think about what you want to say ahead of time, then turn on the camera, uh, one take, and uh, upload. Uh, 
uh, those are super powerful. Students love those and they love, you know, knowing that you're paying attention and that you're uh, interested in their ideas and that their ideas affect you in some way. So I think that's just, I think that's the best part is a super simple video allows you to uh, be the teacher you already are. You know, all you're doing is turning on a camera and uh, it, it takes the edge off too because, you know, you can have a bunch of comments in front of you that you're responding to and it's just easier than starting up a camera and trying to deliver a perfect lecture without screwing up, you know, because you're, you're, you're connecting, you're not performing. And that, that makes a big difference psychologically to think about connecting with somebody rather than performing for them. I also think people think of making videos, they think, maybe they think of sitting in front of their laptop or, or maybe they think of actually like having a fancy, you know, camera with the microphone, with the kind of like beautiful shotgun, you know, like thing on it that their PR staff has at the college, or there maybe even has a, you know, studio at the college where they've got all that gear. But I was struck in your super simple videos and probably in some of the stuff you use, even in your whatever other videos, I see you with an iPhone and duct tape. Yeah, <laughs> that's my, uh, that's certainly what's always on me, you know, and so uh, I, I, I do use those tools quite a bit. And it's not even an iPhone. It's not that fancy. It's like an original Google Pixel. Oh, right. Uh, Sorry. They kind of look yeah, similar. No, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's a, but a smartphone, a smartphone that you, yeah, that you tape, smartphone. <laughs> that you like, that you duct tape to the window and then stand there in front of it and then take, yeah. a, take the duct tape off when you're done making your, your, your selfie lecture. Right. Yeah. I just want to show people that, you know, you can do this with really simple equipment uh, but it helps to know a little bit about what you're doing. And so why the reason why that looks good and it looks, you know, it, it looks almost like a studio. It doesn't look terrible um, is I, I'm just right in front of a nice big window that's lighting me from all sides. And, you know, that's so much more important than having a two thousand dollar camera in front of you. Uh, just, you know, I, I, I do, um, you know, while I, I want to make things simple for faculty, I also want to. Um, slowly sort of show them that there are ways of leveling up, you know, so you might start with a smartphone and over the course of the series, I'll be, you know, adding more tools and making recommendations for, you know, things they might want to uh, level up with, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but I'll always like paying attention to, uh, there, there are often simple and low technology ways to uh, get what you want. And the most important thing you do is, need to do is uh, improve as an online instructor, not, you know, get really good with technology. Technology, I think, I worry that technology can be a thing where, you know, you can, and I, I say this out of uh, experience, you know, I've, in the four years that I've really been focused on becoming a better filmmaker, I've spent a lot of time on YouTube watching tech reviews saying to myself, boy, if I only had that camera, then I'd be a good filmmaker, <laughs> you know, and I just keep selling myself that. And I, and I just watch these videos like candy, uh, but really they're just a distraction from the real work that I need to do to become a better filmmaker. And that is just take the equipment I have and get better with it. So I'm trying to help people avoid the wasted time and mistakes I've made uh, by dreaming of better equipment. One of the things that struck me the most, that surprised me the most, is that you read all the readings aloud into, and you basically do a book on tape of the class. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, well, in a typical week, I'll assign 
you know, three hours of content. Um, some of that content is created by me, um, you know, like original, you know, micro lectures and things like that. Um, and then some of that's created by others, you know, like the, like you'd have readings in any class, but I look to, you know, engaging materials like podcasts, documentaries, things like that, which easily transfer into an audio only format if they're not already audio only. And then anything that's written, and I usually like to have at least, you know, one hour of written material, uh, especially like a nice big overview of things like, you know, from a text or like a, a core text, something like that. I, I'll read that. And, and I, I don't, I, I want to be mindful of their time. So I don't offer a lot of commentary during that, but I do offer my enthusiasm. <laughs> you know, I try to, I try to at least sort of be like a responsive audience to the reading, you know, so I'll be, I'll kind of add a little, oh, wow, like he's, you know, he's attacking our, that other person we're talking about in this class right now. You know, I'll just briefly mention that. And, uh, you know, students have said so many positive things about those readings. I've had students tell me that they've never read before and uh, having the, having me read for them, like just changed their lives. Like it made them readers. Um, some students read along, some people uh, do it you know, without the book at all and just while they're commuting or whatever. Um, but so many students have come back to me and talked about how important it was, uh, not just to have the MP3, but to um, to hear my enthusiasm and my excitement for the ideas made made them excited about the ideas. I've just never heard of a professor do that. Have you? Did you get this idea from someone else or? I, I did not get it from someone else. I, I don't, I, I just seemed obvious to me <laughs> that it had to be done. <laughs> so you're, cause it, it, there is this idea, right? I hear a lot of faculty say things like, um, oh my, I'm so frustrated. My students don't do the reading. And, and you know, it sounds like you're almost saying some students don't do the reading, but instead of just blaming them or something, you're basically saying, okay, I'll read it to you. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I'm saying, like, I get it. You know, man, I, I remember a lot of readings I didn't do when I was an undergrad, and I had a lot of good reasons not to do it. Um, and I also had bad reasons. Or, You know, I think the biggest thing was I just wasn't into reading yet, and I didn't know how awesome reading could be. Uh, I, I mean, this is a weird thing about my life, but I didn't read any books from about age 9 until 19. And it was sort of like a mark of honor for me. You know, I, I grew up in a small town and um, I was just around a lot of people who, you know, if you read, you were you were a dork basically, right? So I just didn't read. And then I had a professor in college who assigned Michael Crichton novels in a neuroscience class. And I thought, well, this is crazy. You know, we're, re we're reading Jurassic Park in neuroscience. Like, what's this about, you know? So I, I, I read Jurassic Park and man, my... Uh, heart just thumped so loudly with excitement of immersing into this world of reading. I, and I started going to libraries and bookstores and I mean, I could not contain my excitement. I, my heart would just be pounding looking at the books. You know, I just, I just get so excited and I wanted, I wanted to do that for my students. You know, I, I know there's other students out there who are like me who uh, haven't discovered that joy yet. And I want to share that joy with them. Why do you, what is it that got you started? Like why, especially if you don't like to be on camera, what do you think drives you to have gotten into this? Uh, I think a couple things. Uh, I think I've always wanted to be the best teacher I could be. And I pay attention to how I learn and who I'm learning from. 
uh, as for inspiration. And I found myself more and more drawn to, um, honestly, like really outstanding YouTubers who were teaching me things um, and engaging me uh, in really deep ways. And I thought, you know, goodness, I'd love to be able to do this, you know, and I'd, I'd love to bring these same skills to anthropology. You know, some of the people I most admired were just like food vloggers, you know, people traveling the world. And I thought, man, these people are showing the world these different cultures in a really positive way. That's supposed to be my job. <laughs> you know, like, I'm supposed to be the one <laughs> who takes people, you know, behind the curtain of different cultures and shows them like, you know, what different things mean and, and allows them to experience it. And here are these food vloggers uh, who aren't even trying to do what I'm supposed to be doing, and they're doing it better than me. Uh, so I started looking at that and just thinking, man, I, I need to, I need to, I need to get there. And I, it, that was like four years ago and I'm still not there. You know, I, I think I'm still on the journey, uh, but I, I think it's an important journey. And I think some faculty uh, should go on the journey. Not, not it's not for everybody, but um, I'm hoping that there are some who will come along with me and that we'll be learning from each other over the coming years or, you know, it may take decades <laughs> to get where we want to go, but, but I, I think we can learn from each other along the way and maybe do some really interesting things. This is such a great companion episode to one we did just a month ago or so where we had John Green, a very famous YouTuber, educational um, YouTuber, who has no, you know, teaching, classroom teaching experience and admits to having no training as a teacher and doesn't even see himself as a teacher, but is, you know, somebody that is, you know, has really reaches so many students in, you know, because of his videos on Crash Course are assigned to people. It sounds like he's almost the kind of person you're talking about, whether it's him specifically or not that you're looking to. Yeah, he's one of them. I mean, I have, I have a lot of them and I, I tried to sort of honor some of them in uh, the third video in my series, uh, which is sort of, uh, it's, it has like a sec secondary title of what professors can learn from YouTubers. And in that one, I, I, I do call out a number of really outstanding YouTubers who have shaped um, the way that I think about teaching. Um, John Green is certainly, certainly one of them. You know, a lot of, a lot of academics have kind of dismissed educational YouTube, especially in the early days of it, especially like four years ago, say. Yeah. Well, I'd like to see what they think now. And if they look carefully at <laughs> what's happening on YouTube, wow, you know, that would, be, it would be a hard argument to make that some edutubers are not doing an outstanding job at some of the things that we should be doing. And I could give examples. Um, I think a lot of the people who criticize this might change their mind if they watched uh, say something by ContraPoints um, that, you know, she recently posted something that was over an hour uh, and it was just, you know, really gripping, you know, it's like a powerful, deep stuff. I, I just don't know how anybody could, uh, you know, <laughs> I think I think essentially YouTube has set up an algorithm at this point that favors watch time for better or worse. And what we're finding is that there are a lot of people who want to learn and will hang on for a long time. It doesn't have to be like a little three minute tidbit, you know. Uh, and what's happened is people 
all over the world are teaching each other, scrambling to beat the YouTube algorithm. And to beat the YouTube algorithm, you have to win over the minds of people who want to subscribe to your material and sit there and watch minute after minute after minute. And people have just gotten really, really good at engaging people and providing really high quality content. I just, I don't, I, I would love to, you know, if you want to bring me on and debate somebody, I'd love to do it because <laughs> I think, I think uh, YouTube is, is becoming a place of, I mean, it's a place of a lot of things, but it's one of the things it has is outstanding educational content to learn just about anything you want to learn. I, I'm trying to, my mind is spinning for who to get you back for a debate on. <laughs> Stay tuned. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll, this is a good, that's a cliffhanger. The thing I have to ask you about, because I've been digging into it lately, is this issue of the YouTube algorithm, since we're talking about it. And there's this, you know, a lot of people are talking about the sort of downsides of that attention economy and the algorithm that is getting people to just stay on and hooked and because some of those videos not the educational youtube that you're talking about but there are a lot of political kind of extremist videos that are out there as well there's a, a an amazing podcast that the new york times is doing that's right now called rabbit hole that really just digs into just this issue which i totally recommend people um, listen to if they're interested in this at all but there's a lot of other people that are talking about this now um and i'm curious since you do you're so familiar with the way it works and your own experience with it and the you know what you're seeing is some positive things but what are what are your responses to concerns about how you know maybe people aren't watching you know john green and and people that are trying to be responsible educators um, but instead watching people that are incredibly good at getting people to listen to them and instead have extremist viewpoints that are potentially harmful to society, some would argue. I think it's an interesting thing to think about is like, you know, I, I, I get, I, I'm definitely an advocate of not letting algorithms become invisible. You know, we should always be aware of what algorithms are doing and what kind of content they're elevating and why they're elevating that content. Uh, that's super important. And a lot of algorithms are opaque and, you know, YouTube is not giving us the precise details of their secret sauce. And to some extent, they're doing that to protect against the extremist who could then, you know, uh, use the algorithm to their advantage even more. Um, but, you know, there, it's an interesting question about that gets down to you know, what, what we think about discourse in general and how, how a conversation should take place and what are the boundaries. And I think those are, those are really difficult questions. Um, in general, I think from, here's the thing. I, th I think the thing is that for 99 plus percent of people, they can watch all this material and they'll, They'll be pulled this way and that way through the rabbit hole of YouTube. And for 99 plus percent of people, the truth will win, so to speak, right? Like the, the good stuff, the stuff we actually want them to watch is going to be, it's going to be there for them. But, uh, but you're right that there's going to be this other bit. Um, and this is a troubling piece is that um, YouTube can just sort of magnify uh, any algorithm can magnify um biases and all kinds of things that lead you down this rabbit hole where everybody around you is confirming your bias and so on. So 
you know, does YouTube have a responsibility to confront those biases by tweaking the algorithm? I think they do. And I think, uh, I think they probably already are doing that to some extent. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a, but you don't see yourself as, as somebody who needs to come in and correct kind of the, some anti-academic conspiracies on the internet, like that these kind of like, cause there is this huge. Oh no, I, I definitely think I am. I, I see myself as having that responsibility and that's, I think that's the proper way to go about this is that we should all as educators be leveling up our skills to be able to participate on that platform rather than just, you know, screaming from the sidelines about the algorithm. Uh, certainly get on YouTube and talk about the algorithm in a smart way that convinces people that things need to change or use the algorithm to confront uh, the people out there who are, you know, spreading hate and so on. Um, and anti, anti academy, you know, there's such a, yeah. um, yeah. you know, there, part of it is this kind of, you know, almost anti expert, anti PhD holding. Right. Kind and of vibe. you know, there are, there are people confronting them in very sophisticated, excellent ways who don't have credentials, but they're still fighting the fight for us. And I'll, I'll just point out one would be rationality rules. Uh, who has a channel who consistently confronts uh, the star villain of rabbit hole. So there's people out there doing it very, very well. And, um, and I just think, you know, I, I, for one, am one who like feel a little bit behind the game and feel like it's my responsibility. It's my public responsibility as an educator uh, to confront that kind of hate. And I, you know, I, I'm just not there yet. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not that good at making videos and making content. Um, and winning the algorithm. And winning the algorithm. Yeah, I'm just not there. Um, wow. And yeah, but you mentioned yourself, and I've seen this too. It's like very few of the people featured in these, you know, the, of the voices of YouTube that are, you know, really influential, for better or for worse. Almost none of them are academics, if I understand it correctly. Very few yeah. are a professor like yourself. Right. There are very few. And, um, but I wouldn't say they're not academics. A lot of them have graduate training. Fair enough. And, Fair enough. I should yeah. say they're not at a university. So that is a very good point. Right. That is well, why would point. they be? I mean, they're making tons more money <laughs> with total freedom, total creative freedom. <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't blame them for not being in the academy and, and some of them make videos about why they're not in the academy. And I think they have, they have good, good reasons for that. But I guess it does feel like, um, I guess my point not, and I certainly don't want to get into a, a, at all being a trashing because I, I have a lot of admiration for um, some of the very channels you're mentioning. But the question of like, it's interesting still that we have this, you know, institution in society, higher education, and that's not what's, that's not what is producing those voices. That's all. Yeah, well, I, I agree. I, I think that's, I think it's very interesting and sort of troubling that, uh, that we're not more part of the conversation. All right. Well, um, we have taken, I've taken up a lot of your time. It is um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's, I feel like there's a lot of to be continued in what we've talked about. Um, and so your series is still going. You're just getting started with this um, Teaching Without yeah. Walls. So people can tune into that. If they want to find it, where do they go? 
Uh, just youtube.com slash mwesh, M-W-E-S-C-H. And yeah, we got a nice little growing community there. So We'll put a link in our show page as well. Great. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, it was great to talk to you again. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you conversations like this one. I kind of couldn't help it. This one's a bit longer than our usual episode. I'd be curious to hear any feedback on whether that worked or maybe prefer the standard 25 minutes or so. Shoot me a line at jeff at edsurge.com. Always adjusting here. If you don't already, please subscribe to the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, take a minute to give us a shout out on social media. That's the best way to support the show. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.